2: and all and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddo and wherever you're listening from it's great to have you with us. Thank you as always for your lovely messages and comments about Book Off on email and into our DMs and all that social media stuff as well. It's always lovely to hear from you and we appreciate you spreading the word of our little podcast. So then, on with today's episode and as always i'm joined by two fabulous authors who'll be going head to head in a war of the words. My first guest was the editorial director for Penguin Random House Children's Books before becoming a full-time writer. She's the co-author of the number one YA bestseller, The Magpie Society, One for Sorrow, and has written seven solo novels for children and young adults. When she's not writing, she loves hiking and mountaineering, and in 2019 became the youngest Canadian woman to climb Mount Manor Slough. I wonder if I've said that right. We'll find out in a moment. Manaslu. Maybe that's better. Here to tell us about her first adult novel, Breathless, it's Amy McCulloch. Welcome to Book Off, Amy.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Joe. Delighted to be here.
2: How was my pronunciation of that mountain?
1: Yep, perfect. Manaslu. The second one. (laughs)
2: got it in the end great and my second guest was a criminal barrister in London for nearly a decade before completing her MA in creative writing her previous novels Blood Orange and The Lies You Told were published to great acclaim and her third novel It Ends at Midnight is just about to come out here in the UK and here to tell us about that it's Harriet Tice hello Harriet
3: hi hi thank you so much for having me on
2: And uh, here are the um, introductions, the virtual introductions. Amy, Harriet. Harriet, Amy.
3: Hi, Amy. Hi, Harriet. Big fan of
1: Blood Orange and now your latest one. It ends at midnight. I got to read it over the weekend
3: and uh, was just totally engrossed. So thank you for that. (laughs) Well, I I have to say that I had the... um, I think it's appalling to lie in a bath for three hours reading a book about mountaineering, <laughs> but actually it's the best way to do it. It was it was no, absolutely enthralling. I mean, no one looking at me would believe it, but I'm actually secretly quite obsessed with mountaineering documentaries um, and with watching. I mean, I've watched 14 Peaks pretty much when it came out, and I've just made me um, my son resurrect... <laughs> I didn't cuz I didn't know to look out for you but I'm going to watch it again now. And um no, it was it was like being there. It was honestly like being there without any of the of the sweat and the hard work and the angst and the danger. I mean, it you know, even without the actual thriller aspect, it's got enough jeopardy to last a lifetime. So, you know, it's an absolutely it's a superb setting and the sense of pace was tremendous so yeah thank you for a very enjoyable bath and bedtime read experience um where I had vicarious exercise and breathlessness which is about as close as I ever get to it so yeah superb I tell you, thank
2: you what you. shove the mountaineering the feet there is a three-hour bath I don't know how you do it I, 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 I couldn't last more than 25 oh, minutes
3: I, I'm very good at at being very still i see myself kind of as a manatee you know sort of moving very slowly through the deeps so it's a way of conserving energy that's what i say and anyway. you start off so, with your you baths know. like
1: searing hot harriet or i because i can't do that i'm supposed to be doing that at the moment to heat heat acclimate to have really hot baths but i can't do it <laughs>
3: Pretty hot, and then I just yeah. keep topping up, and then it overflows, <laughs> and then the rest of the house can't have baths. Um, it's really not—it's not good for the environment or anything, but it is. I do enjoy it, so That's I'm your Yeah, luxury, this is, is I. I this is this is a luxury it's very and i don't to be fair do it very often but long baths and and reading something in one go is is Mm. hugely enjoyable so you know not quite in one go it did take a bit longer than three hours (laughs) i didn't just skim it i want to be clear but it was a very it was immersive in every sense i was immersed as i was immersed so i like that that
0: was good oh that's
2: good Um, i like that (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about both of your new books over the next 30 minutes or so. We're also going to get some reading recommendations from you of what you've read and enjoyed recently. And of course, we'll be doing the book off where each of you is going to pitch us a book that you love, that you think we should all read. Um, But let's talk about It Ends at Midnight, Harriet, if we may. And as Amy said, she's sort of uh, already already devoured this, as did I, in a very short space of time, because it's a right old page-turner. Um, perhaps you could just set up the premise of it for us, because um, it's got this g- brilliantly dramatic opening.
3: <laughs> I know, I'm never going to look at a fox the same way. <laughs> well, as... And and which was, which was appallingly inspired by that song, What Does the Fox Say? I don't know if you remember that from a few years ago, that I'm not going to sing because you'll lose oh. every single listener, but it had this very sort of, what does the fox say? Anyway, I just had this idea in my head of a body lying over railings with blood dripping down and, you know, what would a fox do and what would the fox have to say about it? And that's really how the book opens, that... Um, there is uh, an EOS party has gone horribly wrong and it's led to this impalement someone's come off the roof um, of an exclusive address in Edinburgh it turns out actually, just as a side note that the house I've used because I used street view and that that aerial view from Google because I wanted to get something with the right pitch um, roof pitch formation Um, I think I've used the American consulate in Edinburgh so I apologise to the American (laughs) government for the misuse of its property in turning it into an upmarket Airbnb where very bad things happen. Um, but yes, so to return to the book that we open with this scene of impalement, um, which has been the, um, the climax of a New Year's party, which has gone very wrong. Um, and then the book goes back. Um, it goes back in time in part to 1989, 1990, um, to when two girls meet in sixth form and their burgeoning friendship, um, and it also goes back a few months um, to their friendship as adults, um, you know, some decades later, um, and the events that, um, you know, the, the seeds were sown back in the late 80s um, and come to ghastly fruition at the end of this party. Um, and it's, it's really an exploration of friendship and the way that rivalry and ambition and jealousy and toxicity can can creep in um, and the misunderstandings that can happen and you know as is the the way with many um, crime books how something you tried to keep secret from a long time ago is always going to come back and bite you Um, and in this case you know it's biting you in the form of of iron railings so so yeah that that's basically it in not quite a nutshell
2: Yes, in, in, a, in not so much a nutshell, that is absolutely it. And there I was thinking, Harriet, that you'd got inspiration from a New Year's Eve party years ago when you were in some posh dress in Edinburgh, supping champagne, thinking, oh, I know what, I know what could happen I'll, here.
3: I'll, I'll tell you what, the inspiration came from um, being a teenager in Edinburgh, staggering through the streets up to the Royal Mile and the Tron, um, off my face looking up and i mean there was one year there was one year where i had got through most of a bottle of jameson's and i didn't even remember seeing the fireworks i was in such a state and and i think that because i wrote this during lockdown um Mm. and you know that the escapism for me you know i think really i was writing about the places i most missed and when we were unable to travel and, and where i most missed were those beaches along the east lothian coast Um, and Gillen where there's an awful party it's all about parties going wrong never have a party Um, that those beaches and Edinburgh itself you know I grew up there it's my hometown and so even though it's incredibly dark I mean it's almost a tragedy really this story um, overall that the parts in Edinburgh are a love letter to it and as I was walking through the, through those streets, drunk in my head, it was amazing. I really, really enjoyed writing it. It's so strange, given how dark it is, how much pleasure I had in it. And I can't really explain that, but I'm obviously a bit twisted. Um, but no, um, sadly, sadly not. It causes more damage getting it out than it does going in, a bit like oh a bayonet my. when you twist it. I'm sorry, it's how my mind works. I apologise. I'm not very nice and cuddly. <laughs>
2: (laughs) Cue listeners who are just having their breakfast or morning coffee. I'm
3: so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
2: Not at all, Harriet. Not at all. Um, (laughs) I want to come back and and talk a bit more about the book in just a moment. But, um, Amy, let's let's just talk about Breathless Briefly. Breathless Briefly. Um, Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could set up um, the story for us and tell us a little bit about Cecily.
1: Yeah, so um, Breathless is a high-altitude, high-octane thriller set on uh, one of the world's highest mountains, Manaslu. It's the world's eighth highest mountain. And the story follows a struggling journalist, Cecily Wong, as she's given the opportunity of a lifetime to interview uh, a legendary mountaineer uh, called Charles McVeigh, who is on a mission to break a a world record. He wants to summit all the highest mountains in the world, all 14 Uh, mountains that reach over 8,000 meters, which is into the death zone. Uh, He wants to do it in the quickest time possible, and he wants to do it alpine style, which means without oxygen and without any ropes um, or support. So uh, he gives Cecily, though, one caveat, which is that in order to have the story, he wants her to come to the mountain and actually climb alongside him, so she can kind of get that insider view as to what it takes to really tackle one of these gigantic peaks. But uh, Cecily is a relative novice to mountaineering and when she gets to base camp there are a series of kind of deadly sometimes incidents that occur that uh, she is shocked by but everyone else on the mountain kind of writes off as just part of the risks that you accept you're going to take when you um, embark on one of these big challenges but cecily can't shake the fact that she feels like something suspicious is going on and the higher they climb the more deadly the peak becomes and cecily realized that maybe she's not only hunting a killer story but potentially there's a killer hunting them on the mountain
2: love it, so that, was <laughs> <great> it. <laughs> that was a great pitch that was very a great good. sum up very very and, good <laughs> as i mentioned earlier amy in your intro you are a mountaineer um, so did did the inspiration quite literally hit when you were sort of halfway up?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I am a mountaineer, but I have to sort of say that I'm at re- actually relatively new to mountaineering. So I only climbed my first okay. ever mountain um, at all in, in 20, uh, 2018, which was um, on New Year's Day 2018. You've climbed
2: actually. more than me and Harriet, um, so... <laughs>
1: Well, yes, but, um, but I think sometimes pe- people, you know, assume that maybe this was sort of a lifelong pursuit of mine, but it really hasn't been. It was sort of came after a really seismic um, sh- sort of life change in my, in my life turning point where, you know, I was in a very long term relationship. We got married and then um, after a year of marriage, we the relationship completely fell apart and um, my husband ended up leaving me and I got a divorce. Uh, and the day that my husband left, I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I'd, I'd been on a very kind of clear path, sort of thought I knew where my future was going to take me. And then suddenly realized that that path had completely crumbled in front of my eyes and didn't know yeah. what to do with myself. Um, and I found myself turning to walking as kind of the biggest relief, uh, from those big emotions that I was feeling or the, or the best way to kind of Deal with that, um, and I went on this really long-distance walk in Ireland, actually called the Kerry Way, which is Ireland's longest waymarked trail. And I kind of fell in love with with walking, and and I almost immediately after that booked my next trip to Nepal, which um, again I was on my own. So I did the Annapurna Circuit, which is one of the very famous treks in the Himalayas, um, and you kind of see an 8,000-meter peak for the first time, and that peak is Manaslu. that's the first one. If you go in the direction that I did the Annapurna circuit, that's kind of the the first big mountain that you see. And I remember looking up at it and just being so awed and and so blown away by this kind of magnificent landscape and uh, never, still at that point, never believed that I would attempt to, to summit an 8,000-meter peak. I mean, that was still so totally out of... Um, the realm of possibility for me but uh i was sort of intrigued i wanted to to keep going higher and and i yes i said i found myself on this mountain in morocco which is called mount Toubcal, the highest mountain in morocco and we summited on uh new year's day at sunrise 2018 and watched kind of wow. the sun coming up over the sahara desert and over the atlas mountains and i was just it was just a moment of pure magic that I'd I'd never experienced before and I got that kind of that hook of summit fever I suppose and of course everyone there was talking about their mountaineering journeys and the the expedition was being led um, by a man called John Gupta who's um, the youngest British man or British person to summit Everest from both north and south sides so he was an extremely accomplished mountaineer and a a few other people in the group were talking about potentially wanting to summit Everest one day. And I remember pulling him aside and just asking him sort of, oh, do you ever think someone like me could climb Everest? And he said, yeah, don't see why not. If you can handle the altitude, can do the training, can handle the expedition life, the camping on a glacier for months on end kind of thing, then there's no reason why you couldn't <laughs> summit Everest. And he honestly kind of shattered some of the limitations that I'd had about myself. So. Um, I kept on going, booked my next mountain, which was Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Americas. And that's when I got my first taste of kind of what it was like to um, live on a mountain base camp for a long period of time. And and that's when I realized as well that I was going to write about a mountain. But I didn't know what kind of shape that book was going to take just yet. I actually come from a science fiction and fantasy background. That's where my children's books and also my work as an Mm. editor has Almost all been concentrated on science fiction and fantasy. So I had had this idea playing around of maybe a fantasy set in the mountains or a science fiction maybe set on the highest mountain on Mars, which is Olympus Mons. I was sort of twirling around these kind of ideas. But then when I got to Manaslu Base Camp, I realized no, as Harriet said earlier, it is the perfect location for a thriller. It's isolated. You know the environment all around you is trying to kill you (laughs) Um, but also you are there with a whole bunch of strangers all of whom have their own stories and backgrounds none of whom are vetted in any kind of way Um, often come from extremely accomplished um, or kind of um, very highly motivated people you know CEOs top sports people military people and so you get these huge personalities, big egos, all on the line in very difficult um, environments to live in. So all of that stress is on you already. And you can kind of imagine either someone being pushed to breaking point or if they had nefarious intentions, how easily someone could get away with it.
3: It's something I thought about. I mean, as I say, I'm obsessed with watching these films and I'd read and watched the Touching the Void Um mm-hmm documentary about you know the one where yeah. he cuts the rope and leaves them for dead and I'd had what I thought was a superb idea at one point I think it was when I was pitching for book two that I was going to do a sort of someone coming back from the dead having had the rope cut in the crevasse and taking Ooh. revenge and and I said you know I wrote it all up and I sent it to my editors and I said you know but what I'll do is I'll do this research trip to Everest Base Camp if we're going to talk about limitations and I have to say they both looked at me and they were like Harriet we think it would kill you we really don't want you to do that could you please think and I was so insulted but yet also I do accept that um there wasn't really the time given the time scale to which we were operating which was that I had a deadline um there really wasn't time for me to get myself enough in shape and they said you know what this is something you really need to know what you're talking about if you're going to write about it and as I was reading Breathless yesterday I thought yeah they not yesterday on the weekend that I thought um you know what they really did know what they were talking about. About in saying don't you know and I mean that the whole sort of staying in your lane thing sometimes you know imagination is a good thing but on the other hand I think that um, when it comes to expertise in a subject it's you know there's no there's, there's no substitute for actual experience I mean I think that's something I found with writing about law and writing about cases oh, totally. that you know having done a job that then translates onto the yeah. page it's 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 something that helps so I think it's a it's a brilliant use of of an exceptionally interesting environment um and all Mm. of it with you know 50 percent of the oxygen that you're used to which you know you could sometimes feel in willich magistrates is the case but not quite the same thing (laughs) different sort of death zone there
2: you do always draw from your sort of years of barristering
3: I do, though I have, again, it's another limitation I've realised I've got to meet that I, because, you know, 10 years is not actually that long as a barrister, um, especially not in terms of developing a practice that takes you on to the most interesting and high profile cases um, and in this book rather than you know as is the sort of the usual stock and trade of, of legal thrillers where it's you know it's high stakes and, and the old Bailey um, it's a youth court trial in Highbury and Islington Magistrates Court um, because I had honestly I'd run out I had run out I've not worked there for I've not worked at the bar for 15 years now mm. um, I don't know what changes have really I mean from reading about it it doesn't look as if it has changed that much much in fact it's got worse but i think there have been some technological advances the laws of course change in some respects and i mean i really am getting to a point where i'm just making it up now which is fine if it's fiction but not if you're a so called expert in the subject so my next book i'm kind of leaving it behind because i i don't have any more you know no one wants to know about stolen bus tickets um or shoplifting shoplifting down horse free road though you know i could talk about it at length i shan't um but it's um it is quite nice because it's good to have that secondary storyline that i like having a secondary storyline that sort of gives it you know that, that you've got because of course you know Amy for Breathless you've got the storyline of will she make it to the top the ticking clock of or you know mm. that the, there's the, the jeopardy is if she's going to get her interview and then you've got the the thing that you could have almost anywhere which is the being hunted by the killer but because you've put it into that unique setting it gives it that that sort of double drive and and I think that it's nice to have something which sort of I'd know shadows or replicates. I mean, in the case of Midnight, I tried to explore within the trial that I've put in there its ideas more about telling the truth and Mm. how and making decisions, you know, making the decision that you feel is personally beneficial. Um, may not be the one that is you know either the most honest or the most right and it's not going to serve you you know that a lack of integrity is 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 not going to set well i mean unless of course you're our current administration but perhaps we shouldn't get political um, <laughs> but you know that the, the truth will out and that that lies are going to catch you out i suppose is is what i've i like about courtroom drama and definitions of justice well
1: it's interesting i just did um a talk with an, uh, an author and poet called Helen Mort who's written um, a lot about um, oh. mountains and climbing and how her relationship but one of the things she talks about in her latest book is that um, you know she was the, at the center of quite a um, woof, really brutal case of deep fake um, revenge mm porn I suppose you call it and um and so when I was reading it ends at midnight I'm really trying hard like not to give any spoilers away but the idea of playing with truth (laughs) and how nowadays the truth can be so disguised um or or, you know a fake or you know lies can be so well disguised as truth um that can be so disconcerting Mm. for the person at the center of it and um yeah, so when I was reading that, I found that, you know, even though that was the kind of secondary storyline, I found that so affecting as well because you just don't know how you could respond in that situation. You know, if that was you who was experiencing mm-hmm. that or going through that, you could have real, you know, both fear and empathy for the character. It's just really shocking.
2: Amy mentioned hiking and walking and going off and doing these wonderful things a bit earlier on. Um I'm a fan, in no way like Amy does, Harriet, of the of the early morning walk, and I get the sense that you are also quite a fan of the early morning walk. Would that be right?
3: Yes, I have to say that I am. Um, I do, if I can actually get myself organised, and I can get out, especially if I go up to the heath, sort of for seven ish before there's traffic and before it's mm. too busy. I do find. It's really annoying that you end up feeling much better and happier for us and have a more productive day. I, know, I find really it so annoying, frustrating it? that exercise yeah. is good for you. It's wrong. It shouldn't need to be. You should be able to feel better by just lying in the <laughs> Um But <laughs> the days that I get myself set and the days I get myself out always seem to go much, much better. And also I have a six-month-old puppy who is... Delight, but recall is, shall we say, as the nice lady on the heath pointed out to me, it needs a bit of work. Um, <laughs> she is very distracted by other dogs, by pigeons, by squirrels, by other mm. people, by by everything basically. And so, going early means that we miss a lot of the activity. Um, and I don't need to embarrass myself by screaming. You know, it's a sort of that Fenton in Richmond Park with the deer you know I'm there bleating ala <laughs> hola, hola sort of sounding like a complete freak so um yeah and it is it is nice especially now it's lighter in the morning um yes. and you know I my, my my very pathetic aim is that if I can do 10,000 steps I'm really pleased which is I know nothing pathetic I mean, I spoke, about that Harriet well, I it, no. I don't manage it. I don't manage it every day though. I read a wonderful article yesterday that said that it's only seven thousand that you need to do, and that made me feel very happy because that felt more <laughs> achievable. I have to say that when I was chatting to Amy yesterday, she's training for the Marathon des Sables. You know this, Joe? I mean, it goes from this level of, of of crazy to just it, it's just the mind other day. blowing, mind blowing. Marathon
1: des Sables. I was gonna this I was just... gonna
2: ask you about it, Amy, because it's a bit it's a bit different crazy, from my morning crazy. walks.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, my—I have to say—my mornings recently have been totally consumed by training. Um, I actually have a two-year-old puppy now, so he—or well, he's a, he's, a, hes almost an adult dog now. So he's been my um, my little companion, not for the long runs, but at least you know to get me out in the morning. And now he's much more calm than he was as a as a six-month-old. So he actually is willing to have quite a short walk, and then he comes back and sleeps while I go and do my um, my much bigger training. The Marathon des Sables is known as the uh, hardest foot race in the world (laughs) Uh, it's essentially a 250 kilometer 156 mile um, stage marathon through the Sahara desert you are responsible for carrying your own food and sleeping gear so you're supposed to be completely self sufficient except that they supply you water at the different checkpoints and it's run over six days. So you do a marathon a day for five days and one ultra marathon, which is double length. So it varies year on year. You don't actually find out the course length until you get there, but um, the long day is normally around 80 kilometers long, um, which is a, a double marathon.
2: When you started talking about that, Amy, both Harriet and I pulled exactly the same face and then <laughs> sunk our hands over our heads in this sort of like what the hell do you mean
3: I know I <laughs> did insane I think it's 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 totally it's totally I mean I have to say again in one of my moments of delusion I actually because I, I ran the London marathon I didn't run it I kind of semi-ran semi-walked it but well I done. completed it and I mean, this was 11 12 years ago and I had this moment of like I know I'm going to do the marathon day self I'm on a list I got onto it you can see me on <laughs> a you? list it's mental my mother said you're gonna kill yourself all of my friends said you're gonna kill yourself and it took me a while because I was very resistant i do seem to have a belief it's like the the of body dysmorphia you know i look in the mirror and i see superwoman and it's like i can oh, no no you can't do that you can't do that um but you have to inject i remember reading a blog on it and so you have to have a kit and okay this yeah. is 12 years ago maybe things have advanced but you had a bottle of Fry's balsam and mm-hmm. hypodermic syringes so that if you got blisters you injected Fryars balsam into your blisters because then it hardened your feet is that true are you gonna do that? Uh, I do have Friars
1: balsam and I do have um, a whole foot <laughs> kit in case I run into trouble but there are also some apparently very proficient medics there who can help you out if, if needed but that you also have you have to take an anti-venom kit in case you run across uh, spiders or snakes in the desert and you get bitten um, and you're on your own you have to take anti-venom. Mm you have to there's a whole list of requirements but if you take too much water uh, yeah i love joe and Harriet just shaking their heads if you take too much <laughs> water they they actually uh they, they penalize you with your time so you you can actually fail the race by taking too much water so um yeah it's going to be a very interesting experience but i i don't know i just
2: who do these I, people think they are <laughs> penalizing you I for may- taking too much water I do may- they not know what you're already going through
3: I know. I hope they've I got the body collection ready. Do they just look for the <laughs> circling vultures? No, that's I mean, of course no one died. People don't die doing it, do they? I mean, you don't just you don't just get to disappear off course and then never found again.
1: No, I mean you are wearing GPS trackers. A very in the twenty twenty one edition was um, oh, apparently okay. the worst um, that they've, they've they've ever had because they 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 ran it in October because it was um, delayed. Uh, due to covid restrictions in morocco and october is very different obviously from april in the desert um it yep. was extremely hot extremely hot still um you know they were recording temperatures 50 55 degrees in the middle of the dunes and and sadly someone did die um that year Ooh, in the okay in, sorry in the i know the choice
3: for the levity
1: no no it was just but it was that is very Ooh. it is actually a very rare occurrence i think there's only they've only had um to, that was the second or third, possibly third death in its history. Um, so it, it is extremely yeah. rare and it is considered to be an achievable race if you have the mental determination to get through it. So it's not necessarily about physical ability yeah. or, you know, your ability to run a three-hour marathon or something, which I cannot do. Uh, I am just there to put one foot in front of the other for as long as possible. And apparently if you have that what I'm hoping, the, the mental resilience I discovered within myself on the mountains, I'm hoping I can apply that to the desert. But I ha- again, I have no idea. Yes. And I have to say, I have no ego or investment in whether I complete it or not. I'm just going out there to try. And I think that's one of the, yeah. the things I found so joyous about mountaineering is that I am quite competitive and, and ambitious in lots of fields, but in those kind of arenas, I have absolutely nothing on the line or nothing at stake. And if I don't make it, well, nobody expected me to, so that was okay, and I didn't expect myself to. Whereas I saw that so often and online that makes people it. really, you know, really putting a lot of pressure on themselves, but also, um, you know, big egos kind of clashing and competing in those arenas. It's really interesting to me. <laughs>
3: And that's what leads to danger, and that's what it leads to, to bad decisions and summit fever and, and people dying because they've, they've not paid attention to the weather conditions, which, again, is something that I think you exploit really well um, in the book. I mean, I'm that there was the climber, Alison Hargreaves, who died on K2, and, I mean, that yeah. was something. When I was thinking about this book that I never wrote, um, I was really interested because I read somewhere that... Um, It was she had been driven in part by financial pressure because um, she, you know, various. I think personal circumstances were dictating that she needed to. If she completed the summit, then she was going to get a lot of very good sponsorship deals, which would obviously mean that she had the freedom to make various choices. And perhaps if those pressures hadn't existed, she wouldn't have ended up summiting and then um, dying. I mean, it's a very, it's such an interesting all of that sort of extreme sport is and I think if you're able to go at it with the freedom to fail it makes it Mm. so much more likely that you'll succeed in a way I mean it's a bit like again the Elizabeth Gilbert big magic thing about writing that when you pressurize yourself to produce a a novel of a particular kind that you think is going to appeal to a particular market that's almost invariably bound to fail just because you aren't actually you know bringing in a true creativity that allows the freedom for it to work I don't know it's sort of it's a strange paradox and it's quite a hard position mentally to get yourself into I think sometimes
1: yeah totally and um, and it's also interesting I think because it does play out in different arenas you know I in with Cecily in Breathless you know she's also playing a little bit with him I play with imposter syndrome with her quite a lot you know she comes to this mountain she really you know isn't sure um you know what she's doing there for the first place but also as a journalist you know whether whether that's the kind of right career for her or whether she's you know the right person to really be doing this interview and can she pull it off and all these things and I found that really interesting as well and it ends at midnight because you have a character who's sort of on the brink of achieving an ambition that she's held um, and what kind of lengths you might go for to to either keep on that track or 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 kind of you know when your whole life has been dedicated to a pursuit of, of achieving a particular career goal or you're just you're almost there as long as you can can get through the next year or so unscathed or the next case unscathed, you know. Um, it was re- really interesting to to watch you play with that and how what
3: kind of pressure that puts people under and your characters under. And not a scope in which people always make the best decisions, especially no. not in the context of a psychological thriller. Um, I think it's um it's it's essential that they make bad choices in that environment, <laughs> otherwise you would have no story. But <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, I always like to ask my guests what they've been reading recently and enjoying Gives us all a chance to sort of recommend uh, some other brilliant books that are out as well as yours Um, Have you found some time to, to read recently Harriet and is there anything you'd like to recommend to us?
3: Um, I have yes. I've been trying to do the thing of turning my phone off at nine o'clock and not looking at the internet. Oh, well it's done! Not so. I'm reading in the evenings, which is very been, good. Um, which has been much much better. So, are you sleeping better? Um, yes because you know you don't start it's 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 yeah it's better especially i mean it's a luxury to be able to do it and not and not have to be switched in but you know being switched into the news particularly at the moment isn't always Mm. yeah it's i think it's i think it's good i think it's good um and um the book i read most recently was um it's a proof of a book that's going to be published um mid-april um called oxblood by tom ben who actually was my former tutor at uea he teaches on the the crime fiction course and um i'd asked for it because i saw um i saw that it was being published and i asked for it and it's one of those where you know you read something by someone who's taught you with this sort of your heart in your mouth as to is it going to be good Am I, you know, or am I going to lose? Because I always thought he was really good, um, and it is. I mean, it's <laughs> literary. It's not, you know, it's not a thriller. It's not. Um, it's a sort of about three generations of women um, living in Manchester, um, and that, you know, they're difficult, interesting. It's, 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 it's got lots of aspects of of race and class, and it's. But it's just so beautifully written. I mean, it's so beautifully written. Um, and I would sort of described it... I gave a quote to his editor, because honestly, I just think it's so good. But I described it as David Peace meets Alan Warner's The Sopranos, which was a book about... Yeah, you're, Joe's making exactly the face that he should be <laughs> making. Because honestly, it's just... I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it's sort of one of those where I wasn't totally sure what was happening. Um You know, because it's... Well, it's literary, isn't it? Literary fiction, and I'm a bit thick. So, you know, I just... (laughs) But you just got carried along by the language in this way of just, I don't actually care. Just take me wherever, because I just want to know. And, you know, given that I spend so much time reading... You know, plot driven, um, you know, highly Mm. plot driven, pacey, which I love. You know, I love a good page turner, and it's what I want to write too. But there is something, and you know, and certainly things happen in this book, but actually, not not a huge amount and yes it does and it's and it's but it's it's just it's just brilliant oxblood tom ben pre-order it bloomsbury read it honestly i did think it was i thought it was fantastic that's my that's my plug but i honestly i thought it was so good
2: brilliant oh, I thank you put that, that one on the list what about you amy what have you been uh, reading and enjoying recently
1: uh, well I read a book that actually ended up being really quite timely even though it's historical fiction um, with the news of Shackleton's endurance being discovered I was actually reading um, All the White Spaces by a debut author called Ali Wilkes which is absolutely brilliant um, sort of post world war. well mm, is it post world war 2 sort of, it's a historical antarctical um, antarctical Antarctica. that's not mm-hmm. even a word it's a, it's a historical it is now Antarctic nice. expedition um, that follows a young protagonist, Jonathan, who kind of smuggles on board a uh, kind of, what well, a ship bound for uh, Antarctica. And it's a ghost story. And it's very much reminiscent of kind of Michelle Paver's Thin Air, if anyone's a fan of that. Oh, yeah. And I love kind of ghost stories set in these kind of spooky um cold environments you know very much along the same lines as the terror if you watch that or or north water as well um but Ali is so so clever in building that atmosphere um and and the environment and the kind of creeping dread of the you know the, the the ghost or the mystery that seems to be following and plaguing this ship which really does Uh, encounter every disaster that you could possibly imagine an Antarctic (laughs) ship uh, coming across you know whether that's um you know the 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 diver who has to go in and explore the hull and and you know eventually you know they suffer a kind of similar fate to Shackleton and you know the the ice is encroaching but then more than that you know there is something kind of supernatural happening as well Um, and Ali is just so clever at playing with those different uh, layers and levels without ever getting you know without ever Going too far, I suppose, into the, that supernatural um, realm—it's sort of that insidious horror, I suppose, which I find so so creepy. And she does it to really really great effect in, in this book. So I really enjoyed that, especially if you have any kind of interest in in Antarctic uh, history or right. or that kind of explorer.
3: Mm.
2: All the white spaces. All the white spaces, and I've got a got a shout out for Thin Air as well because that Michelle paper yes. book is brilliant, isn't it? Oh, if I just—if if if anyone listening just, hasn't read that yet, yeah. that's that's well worth a. Read.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Thin Air and Dark Matter, uh, um, both of them are brilliant. um, I I thought she's just a master of that kind of gothic, uh, icy horror.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, icy, exactly that, gothic icy horror. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: Perfect.
2: <laughs> Thank you both for those recommendations. They they are uh, they sound absolutely fantastic. And it's time for another recommendation from each of you because it's time now for the book off where each of you is going to tell us about a book you love that you think that we should all read and you have three minutes uninterrupted to do so you don't have to use all three minutes many don't but if you're still talking at the three minute mark you're either going to be rung out by the school bell or honked out by the bicycle horn Uh, so harriet would you like to go first or would you like to go second
3: oh i think i want to go first i think it's better not to have to follow someone and and keep okay. to there yeah if that's oh, thank, thank you sorry also waiting is waiting is agonizing i do apologize amy
1: well <laughs> amy you get the choice of whether so you
2: want the uh, school bell or the bicycle horn at the three minute mark so which one would you prefer
1: Ooh, um, I'll have the horn, please. Be-doop, be-doop. <laughs>
2: Okey-doke, right. Um, so, Harriet, you get the bell. Now, before uh, we set the timer going, just tell us the book that you're putting forward.
3: Death and the Penguin by Andrei Kirkov.
2: Fantastic. All right, it's three minutes on the clock then. Uninterrupted, if you want them all to tell us about Death and the Penguin, over to you.
3: Right, well, I am being a little topical, but also keeping in theme here, because this book does take place in part in snow and ice and also it has a scene that is set um on new year's eve actually a rather lovely new year's eve um scene at a dacha um which i did rather enjoy but um no to return to the topicality i mean i don't want to be heavy and bring the tone down but obviously at the moment we have an awful lot of news about the awful war in ukraine and um as I was reading um, articles about it, I remembered Death and the Penguin. And Kirchhoff is a Ukrainian author. In fact, this book has just been recommended by the Times as one of the books that we should read to give us an idea of what the environment's been like there. Um, and he himself has just been evacuated to West Ukraine from Kiev. And he's writing the most extraordinary pieces about um, you know life there and, and how it is at the moment. And also his tweets are giving us the sort of up-to-date um, an up-to-date view of of what's going on. And I think that that in itself is quite... Because, you know, novelists are meant to be giving an insight and to speak against sometimes the, the positions of power um, and oppression. And this really is a sort of a very strong living example of that but and he's got a very recent novel grey bees but that's not what i'm going to talk about death and the penguin was written in 1996 it's his best known book it was a huge huge multi-bestseller um, it was translated into english in 2001 um which is when i first read it and um it's a comedy um back post-soviet ukraine which is fraught with mafia and hoodlums and criminality um And it's really, it's a very bleak environment. I mean, the very opening scene, um, the protagonist, Victor, is walking along the street as people throw stones at him because they're bored. And he goes into his house... Um, and there's a power cut. But the thing that does give a little bit of, of bleak light into Victor's existence is the fact that he um, he lives with a penguin, a king penguin called Misha, um, who he has adopted from the zoo. And this is actually true, that the zoo had put out a call saying that they were running out of food um, and money, and if people wanted to come and adopt an animal, if they could feed it, then they would be welcome. And so, you know, in this, Victor has got Misha... Um, And he's brought Misha back in. Um, You know, that Victor, and I'll read from that second paragraph, Victor had gone along and returned with a king penguin, abandoned by his girlfriend the week before. He'd been feeling lonely. But Misha had brought his own kind of loneliness, and the result was now two complementary lonelinesses, creating an impression more of interdependence than of amity, which, you know, kind of gives a tone as to what this is like. Things just don't quite work out for Victor. Um, he's an aspiring novelist. No one wants to publish his short stories. Um, you know, so far, so kind of familiar. Um, an editor reads one of his short stories, those, and then gives him a job offering... Uh, writing obituaries and then it turns out his obituaries are a hit list and it just goes on from there totally surreal very very noir and this is brilliant brilliant penguin well done <laughs> I don't know if that was a good pitch There's just so oh much to say about yes, it was. No it was, it, was it was brilliant I don't, <laughs> I don't want to follow well that at all Harriet Because that was the perfect i that kind of thing I want to go and read right now So you know exactly. I, I do think you would enjoy it It's got your yeah. kind of, of, of atmosphere Of cold certainly yeah.
2: <laughs> Well that was brilliant Harriet You can take a little breather now uh, you've done your bit we'll come back and talk about it in a moment um, but I'm putting three minutes back on the clock for you Amy just before we start tell us the book that you're putting forward please
1: okay well I'm putting forward another debut it's uh, Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter by Lizzie Pook
2: fantastic all right three minutes back on the clock uninterrupted to tell us uh, about Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter over to you
1: Okay, so when I read a novel, I really want to be transported somewhere. We've already talked about this quite a lot um, in the in the podcast, and it's one of the reasons that I kind of grew up loving fantasy fiction and adventure, and it's one of the reasons I love novels like Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter, which I'm now just going to call Moonlight for the sake of time as it takes me to a completely new place and time period that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, Plus, if you're a fan of beautiful objects, I dare you to find a more stunning jacket than the kind of pearlescent holographic foil that um, encapsulates this magnificent story. So I don't know about you, but I had no idea about the bloody and dangerous world behind pearl fishing. Um, Lizzie has a line which says, A pearl has a glow like a fire or a lamp. Eliza learned that early. It's a siren song in the shape of a stone, sending men to lengths they never dreamed they'd go. So the the pearling uh, industry in Australia at that time, which is where this book is set, it's kind of like a Wild West frontier. And I would actually compare this book to kind of a Western except on an Australian frontier. Uh, Moonlight takes us to 1886 Bannon Bay, uh, which is in northwest Australia, um, where the Brightwell family have come to earn their fortune. Uh, we're introduced to Eliza Brightwell, who has grown up in this backwater town, as her father has made a name for himself as a master pearler. But when one day he goes missing, presumed drowned, Eliza is suspicious, suspects mutiny, corruption or possibly murder, and she goes on a hunt for the truth of what has happened to her father. But before I get kind of too much into the story and characters which are both really fantastic, I want to talk about the setting uh, in both time and place. Uh, Lizzie is, I believe, an acclaimed travel journalist um, as her day job and reading this book is kind of a teleportation device to the red sand beaches, sweltering heat and encroaching bush of Western Australia. I had no idea that the sea around the area was rich with pearls and that fortunes were built off the back of exploitation of um, indigenous and diverse populations that came to that place um, in in search of of this great fortune. So you get the the kind of British colonizers, the Japanese master divers, the indigenous boat hands, and they come across sharks, crocodiles, sea snakes, storms, and even kind of benign creatures you think of like manta rays or whales can be dangerous as their flukes kind of tangle up with the diving equipment and you get this really kind of horrific tales I suppose of of divers being dragged along the seabed um behind whales so Lizzie has obviously done her research but she's never heavy-handed with it she uses it to carefully and skillfully layer this novel you know carefully hanging it all around the protagonist who is a real joy to follow Um, Eliza is stubborn, determined, and more than a little reckless, which I think are all qualities required for a woman to make headway in such a lawless town. And it's a really moving tale as well, because she's coming to terms with grief, loss, and the chance that she may well never see her father again. So the Sydney Morning Herald said that in their review that this book has a touch of Robert Louis Stevenson about it. And that's what I agree. And that's everything I want from a novel.
2: Oh, well done. Well done. You've got loads in there, Amy, as well. Two brilliant pitches. Uh, Thank you very much for those. Um, Have a breather, Amy. We'll come back and and talk about Lizzie's book uh, very shortly. I want to come back, though, uh, Harriet, to this fabulous-sounding novel. Now, I have to state straight away that I bloody love penguins, so you're already onto a good thing with this pitch here. Um, But I wasn't sort of quite expecting what you said about this book if I'm honest and it sounds absolutely fabulous and I love that it's a sort of you know tragicomedy I love that there's this just this situation of Victor and Misha living together and then I thought one of the most wonderful things that you said in the pitch was two complementary lonelinesses which is just so lovely isn't it I mean that's like oh what what just that could sum up the whole book um And I don't know of Kirchhoff, I have to say, so that's very bad of me. Um, And amazing that that he's sort of tweeting things and keeping us up to date and giving us a real, you know, a proper view of what's going on in the world.
3: Yeah, no, he just did a he did a fundraiser. I think because Grey Bees has just been published, so he, you know, what he's meant to be doing with his publicity tour. It's kind, yeah. You know, I I don't like the word humbling, but it, you know, I get angst ridden about doing events, and I'm thinking, yeah, and I'm not in a war zone. How about you shut mm-hmm. up and enjoy it, Harriet? Um, but um, it's it's quite extraordinary. And no, he's done. I mean, this this sold this this was very. But I mean, I'm quite old, so you know, I guess because I did read it, you know, back in the day, um, and it's. I think that one of the reviews I read of it calls it absurdist noir. And that really, because mm. again, you know, I think I use this phrase when I was talking about Tom Ben's book that you don't really know what's going on. And I think in this that 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 the whole point really of this mafia kind of ridden existence that he's asked to write these obituaries, and he just writes them, and then he sees that people are starting to die, and then he goes to the funerals. He goes, well, he's he's he finds a, a penguin expert because he gets worried because the penguin's not in good health, um, and the penguin expert dies. So he goes to the funeral, and there's a mafia funeral happening at the same time, and so then his penguin keeps being invited to go to funerals because the penguin adds dignity because you know he's. In his black and white suit. And so the penguin just, just stands there, but then the penguin gets pneumonia. I mean, honestly, it's just completely. Yeah, in, in some ways it's totally random but mm. in other ways I think that it, it sort of encapsulates what it must be like living in a you know when something is so captured a society is so captured by criminality and lawlessness that that it itself becomes random and you don't understand and what's more you don't bloody want to understand mm-hmm. because if you do know what's happening then you're probably going to have to die if you're not the perpetrator then you know too much knowledge is a very dangerous thing and, and I yeah. think something that, that Kirchhoff always Always sort of goes for is this idea that people are, you know, people are just trying to survive, you know, and 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 keeping their heads down and trying to get on with their job, even if that's writing obituaries that turn out to be to be true I mean there's this brilliant bit where there's this really fruity purple prose about an opera singer who's died and you know the voices of the birds have fallen silent and Victor takes a pause and has a large glass of tea before continuing and it's just this sort of bathos and this juxtaposition of I, I I honestly I'd it was so nice to reread it again. Mm. I'd forgotten how much I like it. And you know, frozen fish are the penguin and there's nothing that, that Misha likes better than to have a cold bath. That's a treat. And then the ice and snow that they go down to they go down to the river, which is of course frozen solid, and they let Misha go swimming in ice holes and there's this brilliant bit where he goes off to another ice hole and steals a fisherman's fish. <laughs> and then the fisherman comes over and he's drunk and he looks at them and he says, Have you just seen a penguin? Is that a penguin there? And they look at him very seriously and they say, No, no, there's no penguin here. (laughs) Which is just, you know, it's, and and, you know, what's it about? I don't really know. That's why it's so hard to pitch coherently. But yet, it's it's just really good it's really yeah. good it okay. sounds, you know, I, I, I'm sorry I'm repitching. I'm no, stealing no, more yeah time I've noticed that three minutes that's yeah it's it the that, barrister in you that was that was well done <laughs> at least it's not trying to pitch my own book at least I'm pitching someone's else it's you know I think that's a decent maneuver
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: and I have to say Amy um I want to be transported somewhere when I read a novel too. And I love the the idea of this novel, um, a debut as well, great to champion um, the pearling industry. I know nothing about, but I love that you sort of compared this in a way to a sort of Western and this wild West setting of the 19th century. Um, and these wonderful descriptions that Lizzie does so well, which obviously have all come from her career as a travel journalist. So you, she obviously really puts you in, in the setting.
1: Yeah, she does. I think it's so clever, you know, when you can really sort of immerse yourself and feel like you're there. Her writing is so evocative, but also it, you know, there is a thrilling adventure side to it as well. I think sometimes it's difficult when a book falls between two stools. You know, sometimes it's a bit, you know, it's a historical fiction novel, but it's also an adventure novel. And I feel sometimes that means that, you know, it it, it's difficult to pitch because you you know you don't is it straight for pure historical lovers straight for pure um kind of adventure stories Mm. but actually i i love books that kind of um take on more than one kind of genre or that that play with the the kind of expectations of what you might get from a kind of traditional historical fiction novel anything so i think that that although sometimes that can make it difficult to pitch i really think that you know it might that that Lizzie does it really, really well, and um, you know, you just uh, you get a lot out of the, this book, even though it's it's actually it's it's not that long, even for a historical fiction. novel. sometimes they're really chunky tomes, but this actually mm. moves really quickly. It's pacey, but it also is incredibly immersive.
2: I do love a, a well-researched book, but that isn't sort of uh, heavy, uh, heavy-handed. I think is the way you put it. So that's yeah, it sounds absolutely brilliant. They both do. You you've both done brilliant pictures, um, and I want to read them both. But I've got to pick one. Um, the thing is, I'm very partial to a penguin and a bit of absurdist, so I'm going to take Death in the Penguin. I yeah. think that's just that's just <laughs> taking it for me. No, that's okay. I'm going to go and buy and it right think- now as well.
3: So. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'd, I will say, I don't think you can get a more deserving author than Kirchhoff at the moment. Exactly. Yeah.
2: And we should all be following him, maybe, if we're on the uh, social medias.
3: Yes, yes, It's there, there he is on Twitter, which is just extraordinary. Mm.
2: Um, yeah, I'm going to do that right now. Thank you both for those fabulous pictures uh, and for your book recommendations. And I'm going to check out Lizzie Pook as well, Amy. And It Ends at Midnight by Harriet Tice is published on the 14th of April, I believe, by Wildfire. Yes. Not Long to Wait and Breathless by Amy McCulloch is out now and it's published by Michael Joseph. They are both fabulous books and you should get them onto your shelves and also read them, of course. Um, Harriet, Amy, what a pleasure it's been. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your wonderful recommendations.
3: Well, Thank you, Joe. It's been great. Thank you very much. That's been fantastic. Thank it's you.
2: been lovely having you here. Thank you.